Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Square author and property investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And what I'd like to talk about today is 12 questions which I think every property investor should ask themselves both when they start and also regularly as they progress through their property journey. Why? Because the 12 questions will help to give you clarity about when you're starting. And likewise, as you're progressing through your property journey, they will help to make sure that you keep on track and keep clarity about what it is you're actually trying to achieve and make sure you're still going about it in the best possible way for you. So these are the 12 questions which, if I was going to mentor you face-to-face, we'd probably go through and make sure that we've got good, firm answers on these, and you'd find that incredibly helpful. So if you're listening at home, grab a piece of paper and a pen and make some notes. If you're listening in the car, maybe come back to this episode in the future and make some notes. Certainly as you're thinking about what you're going to be doing in the future, if you're thinking about making a plan, for example, this will really help you. So, question number one. It might sound like a very obvious question, but why do I want to do property and what am I trying to achieve? Now, it might seem a bit strange actually asking that question because surely we all know why we want to do property, don't we? Perhaps you're expecting the first question to be something a bit more practical, maybe like what sort of properties should I buy or where should I buy them? But no, 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 no. Actually, at a very basic level, we need to take a step back and we need to ask ourselves, why am I doing property and what am I trying to achieve in property? Now, if you think about it, every time we do something, we need to be asking ourselves why we're doing it. Tony Robbins, self-development expert, talks about the importance of knowing your why. The why you want to do anything is really the fuel that makes the rocket burn, as it were. If if you're going somewhere, you need to know exactly why you want to achieve it, because if you don't have any particular reason for achieving what you want to achieve, then guess what? You're not going to achieve it. So it's absolutely fundamental. But I think in a property context, because we think about properties being very practical, go out and buy some properties, it's one of those things which we tend not to think about. Now, a lot of people go into property perhaps because they want to have financial freedom or perhaps they're worrying about their pension for the future or perhaps they're thinking about how to get the kids through university. Whatever the reason is, I'm sure that there's a why as to why you want to be in property, something that you can relate to like that. And if you understand that and if you know exactly what it is you're trying to achieve, you're much more likely to stick with it and you're much more likely to succeed. Because the reality is, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, we all know this, with property, there's going to be bumps in the road. Things are going to happen. It's just the way of life, isn't it? Nothing is going to sort of go that smoothly that uh, it's just all going to fall into your lap and, and there's not going to be any bumps in the road. So when you know your why, you'll be much more likely to push through, much more likely to make a go of it. You're going to have stickiness and focus, which you wouldn't otherwise have. So the second part of this question is, what am I trying to achieve? We've thought about why am I trying to achieve it? Now let's think about what am I trying to achieve? And again, that might sound a bit strange because you might think that it's very obvious what you're trying to achieve. But 
The reality is I meet lots of investors, particularly would-be investors, and when I ask them what they're trying to achieve in property, they'll come up with something which is usually quite vague, like, I want to buy some buy-to-lets, or I'm just trying to increase my income, or I'm just trying to create a bit of equity, or, even more vague, they'll just focus on the strategy, such as I want to do HMOs, or I want to do serviced accommodation. In my experience, having spoken to many, many investors, I think it's really important to be clear on what it is that you want to achieve from property. When you can answer that question, what am I trying to achieve, it's going to make it a lot easier when you're some way down the track, when we start thinking about things like what's the right strategy to pursue and thinking about where we're going to buy our properties. And this will all become actually more self-evident as we, as we go through these questions and as the, this all begins to sort of layer upon layer. So stick with me on this. But this is very important. I realise that we haven't actually got into the property stuff yet, but I think these foundations are absolutely crucial to making sure that in 10 years' time we're still doing this stuff and we're being successful. So work out why you want to do property and then work out what it is that you want to achieve from property. We could actually call this goal setting, I guess, and in a future podcast I'll actually think about goal setting and we'll, we'll talk about some ways that you can set your goals. But at a very basic level, you can grab your piece of paper. As I say, if you're driving, don't do that because it could be dangerous when you get a chance. So grab your bit of paper or get your smartphone out and start making some notes and just writing down what the goals are that you want to achieve from property. And I'd suggest that you do this maybe in a six-month period, over a 12-month period, a five-year period and a 10-year period. Now, the difficulty with goal setting is that the longer into the future you go, the harder it gets, because who can imagine what's going to be happening in five or ten years' time? But if you don't have something to shoot for, guess what? You're not going to hit anything. So it's worth doing it anyway. It gives you a track to run on, and it will make your decision-making that much easier because you'll be able to refer back to this, and you'll be able to keep yourself in line and on track with what you're trying to achieve. So do that. Set your goals. Write down what exactly it is that you want to achieve from property. That might be income, it might be capital. I don't know. You know what you want, though. You know why you want to do property. It could be sacking your boss. It could be sacking your boss in six months and replacing your income. And then going on to build, I don't know, not just financial freedom, but financial opulence. You know what your goals are. You write them down. So if you haven't done that, put this on pause. Don't move on until you have. If you have done it, Let's go on to question number two. So question number two, now that we know what we want to do, we can think about how we're actually going to achieve it. So question number two, getting a little bit more practical, getting more towards the property stuff, is what strategy do I need to follow in order to achieve what I want to achieve? Now if you think about it, in my opinion, I think that there's three main strategies that one can follow in property. We could have a bit of a semantic argument about this, actually, because sometimes I hear what I would consider to be techniques being called strategies. It doesn't really matter. Let me tell you what I think the strategies are. You can see whether you agree or disagree. There's buying and holding properties to rent out. Strategy number one. Strategy number two is buying and holding properties for what we could call equity or capital appreciation. And then there's buying and selling properties buying and selling properties for a profit, to make lump sums, what we could call flipping. And if you think about it, most strategies, or at least should I say most techniques, fall within one of those three main strategies. 
So if you've answered question number one, why do you want to do property and what are you trying to achieve in property, you can now start to think about which is the best strategy to help you to achieve what you want to achieve. And when you start to think about it in that context, you can see why question number one is so important. Because what happens so often is that investors just jump into buying a property without even considering question number one. They don't really think about what it is that they're trying to achieve. They just go out and buy property. Why would they do that? Well, because they've heard that property is good. Maybe they've read in the Daily Express or whatever that the property market's going to boom or the property prices are going to go up £50 a day for the next 10 years or whatever headline the Daily Express is running that day. Or maybe their mates down in the pub have said property is a good thing to get into. And so they'll go and buy a property and they'll rent it out. But if you're getting yourself educated in property, which presumably you are listening to this podcast, you'll know that things aren't quite that simple. Now, don't get me wrong, I actually have a lot of respect for anybody who takes action because the reality is 95% of the population probably aren't going to do anything at all. So the fact that somebody's gone out and done something is really, really commendable. But it'd be much better if they didn't just take action, but they also took the right action. And the key to that is making sure that the property that we buy fits our strategy. And of course, our strategy will, more often than not, be dictated by our goals, or put another way, what we want to achieve, which is what we considered in question number one. So when you know what you want to achieve, you can then start to think about which is the right strategy for you. So just to give you an example, if you want to create income, logic would suggest that you follow some kind of buy and hold for income strategy, such as buy to let, or maybe buying HMOs, buying a property, keeping it and renting it out. Then you can start to accumulate properties and start to create a portfolio. And hopefully in time, once you've bought enough properties, then the cash flow that that portfolio is going to pay you is going to replace your income. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's how most people would think about sacking their boss, particularly if they want to sack their boss in six months. But is that the right way of doing it? We'll come back to that in a moment. Or perhaps you're thinking that you want to grow your wealth. Now, in property terms, wealth, we can probably call that equity. And as a very quick, loose definition, I always think of equity as being the difference between the value of the property and any mortgage or loan that you have on the property. The, the difference between those two figures is really the value of the property to you. That's your wealth. Maybe you want to accumulate wealth. Maybe you think you might need some capital in the future. Maybe you're thinking about cashing it all in when you, when you retire. Or maybe you want to create some equity to pay off the mortgage on your own home. I don't know what it is, but we can do that as well. That sounds like a very interesting strategy. But again, is that a wise strategy? Is that the right strategy for you? Or perhaps, like a lot of people, we're feeling a little bit skint at the moment and we'd like some lumps of cash. Lumps of cash regularly appearing in our bank account. So if we only have a limited amount of money to start with, for example, and we want to accumulate some capital to use for deposits, maybe we want some deposits to start creating a buy-to-let portfolio. Maybe the strategy we should be using is buying and selling. If we flip properties, we can make lump sums, and maybe those lump sums can then actually be used for deposits as we create our buy-to-let portfolio. 
So we might find in the first instance that what we should be doing is not buying buy-to-lets per se, but going out and looking for property which we can buy cheap, maybe renovate if it needs a bit of work doing to it, and then selling it on at a profit. Now I said I was going to come back to the idea of sacking our boss because one thing which I hear over and over again, particularly from new investors, is the idea that they want to use property to get out of their day job. And I fully understand that. That's essentially what I did sort of 20 odd years ago, although the reality is that the day job actually got rid of me, but that's another story for another time. But I fully understand that. And when you think about it, logic would suggest that the best way to do that is to accumulate a portfolio and to let the passive income increase within the portfolio until such point as it overtakes your earned income, so you can then leave your job and sack your boss. But the difficulty with that is, and many investors who are already experienced in buy to let, I'm sure will be able to confirm this, is that generally speaking, the cash flow from a property probably is going to take a while to build up to a point where you can sack your boss. So, for example, I buy a lot of properties up in the northeast where the yields are fantastic and the properties are cheap, which is the attraction of buying there. But the cash flow from an individual unit is probably only sort of 200 to 250 pounds net after costs. How many 200 to 250 pounds is it going to take to get you out of your job? Probably quite a few. So the reality is, sacking your boss by accumulating a portfolio and by building up the cash flow through a portfolio is probably going to take longer than you think. Especially when you start to factor in irregular costs like repairs and voids, which is when the properties are empty between tenants. And quite often, again, when I meet new investors in their excitement, they, they quite often forget they're going to have to pay those costs out. No, we need to be accepting the fact and recognising that that will also come along as well. And that's going to affect our cash flow. So when somebody says to me that they want to sack their boss and they're going to do it by creating a portfolio, I'll always question them and say, are you sure that that's actually the right strategy for you? Because if you want to get out of your job, perhaps a better strategy would be to do something like buy and sell. If you buy some properties, if you then flip them and sell them at a profit, and you have lump sums of money coming into the bank, then maybe one or two sales, one or two flips, will more than cover your year's salary which means that you will be able to sack your boss in six months. Now that could be a little bit counterintuitive for all the reasons I've talked about, but it might be exactly the right way for you to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. Or it may be that the best way to sack your boss is to do a combination of strategies. So do some flips and at the same time buy some properties and keep them in the portfolio. And I'd encourage all beginner investors actually to do that. In fact, I would suggest that as investors, we should always be looking out for opportunities. And even if our primary strategy, in progressive speak, our 70 out of our 70 2010, is to hold properties to rent out, whether that be buy-to-lets or HMOs, I would suggest that you always keep an eye open for those little opportunities that come along occasionally, which may not be in your main strategy, but you can take advantage of them when you see them. And that could be buying something and selling it on. So it's worth spending time and thinking, what is it I'm trying to achieve? And then thinking about the best possible way to achieve that. And as I say, it may not always be the most obvious strategy, which is going to allow you to achieve what you want to achieve. Right, well, question number three. Here we are. This is going to be quite a testing question. How much time can I spend on my property business? 
so important to be able to allocate from the very beginning the time that you're going to need to achieve what you want to achieve. Again, it sounds obvious, but if we're going to make this happen, we're going to have to take action. And if we're going to take action, we need to make sure that we allocate the right time to taking the right sort of actions. The right sort of actions are going to help us to build our property business. So you might be starting part-time, and I meet a lot of investors who tell me that they have very little time because they're starting part-time. And I understand that. If you've got a full-time job, if you've got a demanding boss, if you've got family, for example, who need you, I fully understand that actually squeezing the time out to start and develop and run a property business is quite a challenge. I know this, I've been there myself. Perhaps one of the big advantages I had when I started was I was made redundant. At the time, that felt very uncomfortable. But I can see now that actually it gave me the time to be able to do the things that I needed to do. But not all of us have that luxury if being made redundant can be called a luxury. So I'd suggest that the starting point is to think about how you're currently spending your time because the reality is, even if we feel busy, usually there's going to be times during the day or during the week or over a month when we're feeling busy but we're not actually being very productive. So is there any time which you could call wasted time and which you can take back to use for your property business? So here we are, I'm going to confess this, judge me if you like, but I know that I watch too much TV, for example. I'd love it if you had this idea that I was this very studious person who's always sat in my office in some leather-bound chair reading leather-bound books about property investing. But actually, I'm not. I'm a bit of a box set addict, and it's something my wife and myself love doing. I spend too much time in front of the telly, and I know that if I had to do something and I had to find five or ten hours in a week, I could easily cut back on my TV watching. Maybe you have different temptations. Maybe you're a bit of a Facebook junkie. And although not many people admit this, but I know that there's some people who are on Facebook for hours and hours every day. Maybe you could cut back on that. Just imagine how you could grow your property business if you swapped Facebook for Rightmove, for example. Or if you use the time instead to ring agents and start making appointments. And then the big question, what do you do at the weekend? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm not careful, I can find that I can just drift through the day. Before I know it, it's lunchtime and I've not really achieved very much. And that can happen, especially at the weekend when the pressure's off a little bit. What can you do at the weekend? Now, if you've got to have family time and you've got commitments to family, and by the way, family is really important and family are a very high value of mine. So I fully understand that. But it's a balance, isn't it? Because at some point, something's got to give if you really want to create your property business. So what are you doing at the weekend? Could you allow yourself, for example, just a couple of hours to make some appointments and go and view some properties? The reality is that when you think about it, most people, even those people who don't feel that they have very much time, can probably make time to do the stuff that we need to do. But if you're really stuck for time, the answer could be outsourcing some of your property-related activities. If you're wondering how to do that, then obviously I'm going to recommend a great book by Rob Moore, Life Leverage. Read it. That will show you how you can free up loads of time and how you can engage people to help you do the stuff that you need to do. People who can help you to become successful in property. 
So for example, rather than going on to write move yourself and looking for deals, maybe at some point, and maybe not right at the very beginning, in fact probably not right at the very beginning, because it's important that you understand the process, you need to be able to understand the process to be able to teach somebody else. But once you're at a point where you can teach somebody else, it's entirely possible that you could take on a, a VA, a virtual assistant, for example. Maybe this might sound a, a little bit exotic, but a, a virtual assistant in the Philippines, a lot of the progressive community have done just that. Somebody who can then go through right move for you, for example, and start identifying possible properties. Even contacting the agents for you to make appointments and then emailing you your list of appointments. So all you have to do on the Saturday morning is jump in the car and look at the properties. Lots of people are doing that kind of thing. Or perhaps another alternative, if you're really stuck for time, maybe you could team up with a JV partner. Maybe you could take on the services of a deal packager or a property sourcer who can go out and find the deals for you. Now the disadvantage of using a deal packager or a sourcer is that they need to make their money as well and so they'll be making a fee out of you which means that they'll be taking part of your profit. But it's a trade-off, isn't it? Because the quid pro quo is they can also save you many, many hours of looking for deals, of negotiating for the deals, for example, even project managing refurbs for you. Of course, you want to use a reliable firm. There's many, many good deal packages and many good deal sources out there who do a fantastic job. But as in any business, there's going to be the one or two who are a little bit suspect. So you need to do your due diligence to know who you're dealing with. One of the great advantages of being in the progressive community, or if you're in the VIP group in the VIP community, is there's loads of great people who you can do your due diligence on relatively easily and who will help you find properties and you can save you an awful lot of time and effort. Something which I wish I'd been able to plug into when I first started, but of course it wasn't around when I first started. So start by thinking about how much time you've got and start to work out how much time you actually need to do the things that you need to do in order to undertake the strategy that you've now decided that you need to undertake. You can see that we're actually going through a bit of a sequential process here. It's all very logical, starting with the very first question. If you think or if you find that you really don't have very much time, then it may be that you'll have to adopt a strategy which is a lot more passive. So, for example, instead of taking on flips and overseeing the project management yourself, if you're going to do a refurb first, maybe you'll have to just stick to perhaps doing a simple buy-to-let with a much more simple level of refurb. I don't know. You'll have to have a think about it and think about it in the global sense of the amount of time that you can allocate to your business and think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. But the reality is, if you want to succeed in property, you will find the time. And without being unkind, no matter how busy you feel, there will be time that you can take back time that you can reclaim. I know this is true for everybody. I've never met anybody yet who is so busy that they really don't have any time at all. Now, I know for some people that can be hard. If you're a carer, for example, and you've got to be with whoever you're caring for, I know that that can be hard, but there's usually ways and means of being able to do it. Question number four. Now, here's a question. This is the question which worries us all. How much money do I have for my property business? Or put another way, how much money do I have to start my property business? Now, I meet a lot of beginner investors who assume that they 
have access to very little money. Which is interesting, isn't it? There's a lot, so much mindset involved in this question, actually. And that's one of the things which I loved about the progressive community when I first got involved four years ago, that being part of the progressive community totally challenged my mindset around money. Because it's very easy to assume when you first start that you don't have a lot of money. Obviously, I'm talking about those who don't have a lot of money. Some people listening to this may have loads of money, in which case, great, crack on. But if you're feeling a little bit skinned while you're listening to this podcast, don't give up hope. There is always a way. And there is money out there. And if you know how to access it, yes, you can get it too. No matter whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you could, but you need to believe you can. That's probably the key thing. We'll come back to that. So the question is, which I'm often asked, Peter, can I do property even if I have very little money? And the answer is yes, because the money doesn't have to be yours. When I first started, I didn't have any money. And I know that sometimes people look at me and they say, oh yeah, that all just sounds like a bit of a hyped up story, but it's absolutely true. I was made redundant, and at the point when I was made redundant, I didn't have any money at all. I, I'm married, I have children, and at the point I was made redundant, my wife and myself, not realising I was going to be made redundant, we basically spent every penny that I earned. And if you've got kids and a young family, you'll probably understand why one does that. The money just seemed to go into the family. Then one day, I was made redundant. I had no money, but I had to do something. So the very first thing I did was I took on some consultancy work, which I hated, by the way, but I knew I had to do it. And on the basis of that consultancy work, I was able to prove what was a fairly minimal income to the bank, and the bank allowed me to borrow equity out of my own home. Now, obviously, I did it with the consent of Mrs. Jones, and she was perfectly happy about it because she knew that I had a big vision and a big goal and that I was starting my own business, and th this was the only way we were going to be able to do it. The other thing which I did when I very first started was that I went to a relative and I borrowed a relatively small amount of money. It was just enough which allowed me to buy a run-down house in a nearby town, and I did that as a refurb project, which I was then able to sell on at a small profit a few months later. Now, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know whether you've got savings or whether you've got no savings. I don't know whether you've got equity in your home or you haven't got equity in your home. And by the way, there'll be some who'll be listening to this thinking, isn't it a little bit reckless to encourage people to take equity out of their own home? Well, I don't think so, because I know so many people who have started that way, but I'm not suggesting taking money out of your own home and then just sort of splurging it on, on luxuries. I'm talking about doing due diligence and putting the money into properly considered investments which are going to hold their value. This is obviously a very sort of quick canter through in this podcast. This isn't a sort of three-day course where I can teach you how to do this. You need to do all the things that you would normally do anyway and make sure that you're using the money wisely. But if the money is used wisely, I don't think it's any less safe than just leaving it in your home. In fact, actually, you could say that the risk is not to do anything. So there's something to think about. But maybe, maybe you've got other uh, monies that you can access. Maybe you've got ISAs, or maybe you've got old endowment policies. One thing which has become quite topical recently is the use of pensions. A few years back, the government changed the way that pensions can be released. So if you're 55 or over, you can take 25% of your pension pot tax-free. Doesn't apply to all pensions, by the way. 
applies to most private pensions, but if you've got a government or a local authority or a military pension, you may not be able to do it. You need to check with an IFA. But in a broad sense, pensions have become accessible. Now, if you're not 55, does that matter? Well, it means you can't get your hands on your pension, but perhaps you know people who are over 55, maybe people who you could JV with. And of course, that's the other thing which has changed so much. Another reason why I loved getting involved with the progressive community a few years back was because it opened my eyes to the possibility of doing JVs with people, something which I hadn't really done, to be honest, when I was building the portfolio all on my own, but which I realised if I had been using JV funds, I could have created a, a much bigger portfolio much more quickly than I actually did. JV funds, finding partners who can come in to finance your deals, is one way which many people who have absolutely no money can get themselves involved in property. Now, the big objection I often have is, but Peter, if I haven't got any experience, why would anybody want to JV with me? But I don't think it works like that. I think that's far too simplistic. Very often, what a JV partner is looking for is somebody who, A, has got the time, because time is very valuable, and the JV partner doesn't have the time to put into the business, but B, somebody who's got passion, somebody who's enthusiastic, and passion and enthusiasm actually is probably worth a lot more than experience in many ways, strange though that sounds. So certainly don't think that just because you're at the starting point in your property journey, you have nothing to offer to a JV partner. I'm absolutely sure you have. And I would sort of challenge anybody to think about that because I don't care who you are. At the very least, you can give your time, particularly if you go through what we were thinking about in the last question and looking at where you can save time in your busy day and offer that to a JV partner. So what I suggest you do, while you've got your pen and your paper out, or if you've got your tablet out, or if you're making notes on your phone, at a point when it's safe and you're not driving along, work out how much money you've actually got access to. Start thinking about the different forms of money that you may be able to get your hands on. Have you got any old policies? Have you got any savings, stocks and shares? I don't know what it happens to be. Who do you know who could be a potential JV partner who may be able to come in and help and who may be able to help to finance your property business? Make a list of everybody you know. Then, once you've made that list, make sure that you take the time to tell everybody on that list exactly what you're doing. Tell them that you are now a property investor because you are. Whether you've bought a property or not, if you intend to buy property, then as far as I'm concerned, you are now a property investor. And this is the amazing thing. When you start telling people what you're going to do, when you start telling people that you are a property investor, you will be amazed because I'm absolutely sure that at some point somebody is going to say to you, I've always wanted to get into property. I've got a little bit of money tucked away. Can you help me invest it? Why do I say that? Because it happened to me when I very first started putting my portfolio together. I was talking to some friends. I had no idea that they were going to be interested in property. And the very first thing they said was, we've got a little bit of money. Can you help us invest it? But that story I hear so often. When I'm running Masterclass here at, at Progressive in Peterborough, even within the four days of Masterclass, there's usually every Masterclass weekend, somebody will ring home or ring a friend or ring a family member and just say, look, I'm, I'm doing this property education. I'm going to be a property investor. And they'll come running in at the break, really excited because 
whoever they were speaking to has said, do you know what, I've got a little bit of money, can you help me invest it? It happens over and over and over. The key thing is though, you've got to be telling people, you need to tell them, this is what I'm doing, I'm now a property investor, and just wait for the responses. You don't even have to ask for the money a lot of the time. Although if you feel you can, it might be worthwhile talking to people and saying, well look, this is what I'm gonna do, would you like to come in with me? So often you don't have to do that though. They will just say, can I come in with you? A lot of this is down to belief. So there's the challenge, make the list, go and talk to people. So how are we doing? These are the 12 questions that we need to think about when we first start out. And by the way, which we need to ask ourselves regularly during our property journey to make sure that we're on track and being as efficient and as, as effective as we can be. Let's crack on. Question number five. So we've thought about what we want to achieve and we've thought about the right strategy. We've thought about time, we've thought about money. We're now gonna get into some of the nitty gritty property stuff. So question number five is quite simply, what type of property fits my strategy? Now, if you've been through the other questions, hopefully you'll, need, you'll know what your strategy is because obviously you can't answer that question unless you know. And as I said earlier, this is so important. It's so important to know your strategy because I meet so many investors who just go off and buy properties randomly, not really thinking about why they buy. And they certainly don't buy with a strategy in mind. They don't buy with an overall outcome in mind. They just go and buy some stuff. In fact, actually, coincidentally, I was um, looking at the Progressive Facebook page this morning, and there was a post by somebody whose relative has done exactly that, gone off and randomly bought a property at auction without having any property education, without knowing anything about property, without knowing anything about refurbs or how to cost them, without thinking about an exit strategy, without knowing what they're going to do with this property, but because it was at an auction, and presumably because they watched something like Homes Under the Hammer, they thought, what a great thing to do, and they just went out and did it. Yeah, take action by all means, but you're going to be far more successful if you take the right actions in the right way, in a considered way. Another scenario which I, I regularly come across is buying properties because they happen to be sort of close to where you live. Now, there's, there's a lot of advantages to doing that, but it's got to be the right type of property. Just because it's in the street round the corner, which means that you can manage it easily, doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be the best investment for you. That's kind of like random buying. Another time I was talking to somebody who was investing in property and they'd bought a property which they hoped was gonna give them a lot of cash flow, and it wasn't. The reason why they bought it though was just because it happened to be sold by their managing agent who said one of their clients was selling up and they were offered this particular property and because the managing agent was their managing agent and already managing it, they thought, well, I'll buy it. But actually the figures didn't stack up. We need to be very, very careful about what we're buying and make sure that it actually fits with what we're trying to achieve. Now, when you're looking for property, there are some very basic rules that you need to be aware of in property. I say rules, they're more guidelines really. Anybody who knows me will know that I hate the idea of rules because rules are there to be broken really. But the guideline is, generally speaking, cheaper properties will give us a greater return. And so those are the types of properties which we probably need to be looking for if our principal strategy involves cash flow. Now if you want to know how to work out the return on the property, this isn't really a maths lesson, and actually, again, if you know me, you'll know that maths is not a strong point. By the way, tangentially, 
if you're a bit worried about your mathematical ability and think that might hold you back in property. I really struggled to get my maths low level as it was at the time and I went on to become a chartered surveyor and I'm now hopefully a fairly successful property investor. Maths has never held me back. I can't say I completely understand it though, but I can do some basic stuff. So to work out the return on the property, to work out the gross yield on the property, all you need to do is to divide the annual rent by the value of the property and then multiply it by 100. That'll give you your gross yield. Generally speaking, if you're going to do buy-to-lets and if you want to recycle your money out, if you want to do what we call the buy, refurbish and refinance strategy, which we teach here at Progressive, you probably need properties which are going to give you a gross yield of about 8%. Give or take, as a rough rule of thumb, that will make the figures stack up. Now, if on the other hand you're not buying for cash flow and you're buying for equity, if you're buying to increase your wealth, if you're buying, for example, to perhaps create a, a lump sum of wealth so you can cash it in for your pension at a future date, for example, then rather than buying properties which are high-yielding, you'll probably want to buy properties which are lower-yielding. Why is that? Because in property, what we usually tend to see is that properties which are lower-yielding tend to be more expensive properties, and they tend to be the ones which have the greater chances of capital growth. Now, it doesn't always work that way. As I say, this is a bit of a guideline and not a rule. But in a general sense, that's probably what you're going to be looking for. Now, there's many ways to skin the cat. Many, many different strategies we can use. And so you can think about whether the strategy you want to use actually fits within those guidelines. If you want to really supercharge your income from property, you could consider a higher yielding strategy, such as HMOs. HMOs typically tend to give a much higher return than a single buy-to-let in the same area. But that's only half the story, because there's always an upside and a downside, as Rob Moore would say. The difficulty with HMOs is that they're more management intensive. Tenants tend to be more transitory. They come and go more often, more quickly, more regularly. Whereas with a buy-to-let, some of my buy-to-let tenants have literally been with me for 10 years or more, and they're never moving anywhere. Whereas in the HMOs, they tend to be tenants who come for six months or a year and then they're off again. There's also more wear and tear, generally speaking, with a HMO. So these are all the things that we need to think about. Serviced accommodation can be a fantastic strategy for income, but again, the serviced accommodation probably requires, particularly when you're first setting it up, requires more work than doing a single buy-to-let. A great thing about a buy-to-let is you can go and buy the property, try and buy it at a discount, do a little bit of a refurb, put a tenant in, and that, if that tenant's in there for 10 years, then it's just going to give you cash. So you're going to keep pumping the rent out, which is fantastic. With serviced accommodation, though, they're even more transitory than they are in HMOs because people may only be coming for a couple of days or over a weekend, for example. And so you've got to have a team of people who can go in and do the cleaning, people who can go in and change the bed linen, all that kind of stuff. So there's different, different challenges with each strategy. And so you need to think through what it is that you can achieve and what it is you need to balance it with. If you've got challenges with your time, as we thought about in an earlier question, then you'll probably want a strategy which is more passive, like the buy-to-let. If you've got plenty of time and you need lots of income, then you might consider HMOs or serviced accommodation, for example. And in question six, 
Here is the key question. Now, I know that this is a question which gets many of us excited. The question is, where will I find the properties that fit my strategy? In progressive speak, we could say instead, where's my goldmine area? So in question five, we were thinking about what type of property to buy. So in this question, we're thinking about where to buy that type of property. Now, most people will assume that they're going to invest near home. And to be honest, that's fair enough, isn't it? There's a lot of advantages to investing near home. If you can invest near home, it's going to save you travelling time to find the properties. If you're going to invest near home, then you'll be able to use probably a wealth of local knowledge that you've built up over the years. If you live in an area and you've been there long enough, you're going to know what's happening. You're going to know where the amenities are. You're going to know where the, the, the railway station is. You're going to know where the schools are. Perhaps more importantly, you're going to know where the new housing estate's going to be developed. You're going to know where the new shopping centre's going to go in. Maybe you'll know about local employers. Maybe you know about the industries in your area and who's employing, who's expanding, who's contracting. All of this stuff can be great. At a very basic level, if you know your local area, you're going to know where the expensive properties are, which you probably don't want to buy unless you're flipping. You'll know where the cheaper properties are for single let buy to lets. You'll know where maybe the best places are to create a HMO. You'll know where the young professionals want to live. Or maybe you'll know where the doctors and nurses at the local hospital like to live. There'll be a lot of information that you can tap into. And again, in progressive speak, you'll probably know where your Bronx is, which is the area where you don't want to buy because it's so cheap that you're probably never going to be able to get any rent out of the tenants because it's that kind of an area. And likewise, you'll know where Manhattan is, which is probably so expensive that you just don't want to buy those properties even for flipping. Local knowledge is great, so I'm certainly not against buying in your local area. But the reality is you may have chosen a strategy which actually doesn't work in your local area. Now, I would actually preface, preface that by saying most strategies will work in your local area. There's very few strategies which don't work. Some of the most obvious problems are if you want to do HMOs, but the local council has applied Article 4 to your area. Now, a bit of a technical subject. I'm not, I'm not going to go into this. I'm not a planning lawyer. But essentially, what Article 4 is, it's a device which councils can use to limit the number of HMOs in an area if they feel that the area is getting a few too many HMOs. This all started about 10 years ago when some local authorities felt that some areas were becoming a bit uh, student-y. There were too many student HMOs in particular areas and they wanted to be able to regulate that and so they found that they could use Article 4. So it may be that in your local area that HMOs might be a little bit tricky because of Article 4. By the way, Article 4 doesn't mean that you can't do HMOs, it just means that you have to apply to get planning and a licence when you otherwise wouldn't have had to have got planning. For example, if you want to share property between three people and the usual thing is six, you'd have to get the planning for the three. Anyway, not going to go into that now, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can't get consent, it just means that you have to apply for consent. So that could be a problem. I know that there's a lot of investors in London who'd love to do single let buy to lets. Now, could you buy a property in London and put a tenant in? Well, of course you can. But the difficulty is, if you want to recycle your money using the buy, refurbish, refinance model, which we teach at Progressive, 
that can be very, very difficult somewhere like London because the values are so high and the returns are so low and the rents are so low and the yields are so low. That can make it very difficult. Now, if you're in that situation, what can you do? Well, you could just sit on your hands and say, well, I wanted to do property, but clearly I can't. Or you can do the next best thing, which is to accept that you can't undertake that strategy in your local area and go and undertake it in another area. The question I'm often asked, though, is, Peter, if I'm based, say, in London, how do I buy properties up north where I can get the returns and the yields and make it work? It's a great question. It's a great question, and it's a question which I had to answer because for those who don't know me, I live just outside of Nottingham, but I invest up in the northeast, outside of Newcastle, which is about 150 miles away, and it takes me, the way I drive, three and a half hours each way to get there. So there we are. It's not on my doorstep. But could I make it work? Well, absolutely I can make it work. And in this day and age, with all the tools that we have available to us, like Rightmove and stuff, we can do so much research remotely before we even decide to choose our area. The key thing is, though, as far as I'm concerned, is that at some point you must go to the area and you must talk to real people. Property is still a people business. I find it baffling sometimes when I talk to some investors and they say, Peter, I've been trying to get into property for six months but nothing's happening. And I'll say to them, well, what have you done? And they'll say, well, I've gone the right move every day. You can't just go on to right move. You've got to get out and meet real people. So you need to go to your gold mine area or a potential gold mine area, and you need to talk to estate agents. You need to talk to letting agents, particularly letting agents, actually. Why? Because when you understand what's happening in the market in terms of rentability, what rents are being achieved, what tenant demand is, then you'll know whether you found your gold mine area. Because with the best one in the world, I don't care how good a deal is, you can negotiate 25% below market value, you can negotiate 30% below market value. But if you can't rent the property, that property is going to burn your fingers. You've got to be able to let it out. So when you're developing any gold mine area, one of the key people you need to be speaking to is the letting agents. Not just one, by the way. Go and talk to all the letting agents in your area because different letting agents will have different ideas about the type of properties that they want to manage. They have different ideas about the different types of tenants they want to manage. So you need to talk to all of them so you get a good range of opinions so you can make really solid decisions about whether it's worth buying in that area. But can we do that? Can we develop a gold mine area remotely if we're based in London, for example, up north? Yes, we can. It takes a little bit more time, obviously, and it maybe takes a little bit more travelling time, but it can certainly be done. But if you don't have the time, going back to our previous question, what can you do then? Well, I would suggest that the best way to do it is to find a JV partner. Find a JV partner who's already based wherever it is you're thinking about investing and get them to help you to source properties. Either share the properties together, maybe set up a limited company and hold the properties jointly in a limited company. Or if you've been on a JV day here, perhaps do a one for you, one for me type arrangement. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, come on the JV day here. You'll learn some really great stuff about how to structure JVs, but there's always a way of doing it. Use deal packages and sources. Again, make sure you do your due diligence so you're dealing with the right people, so you're dealing with the reputable ones and not the ones who are going to be a little bit iffy. But there are plenty of very good firms out there who are more than reputable and who will help you source properties and help you find deals. So there's always a way. And to be honest with you, if I was starting afresh now, 
And if I found myself in an area where, for example, my chosen strategy didn't work, I would not let that put me off. I would just find somewhere else to do it and I'd find a way of making it work in that other area. And if it meant working with other people, then I'd work with other people. There's nothing wrong with collaboration. And generally speaking, two people working together are going to achieve far more together than not working together. It's like one and one equals three, isn't it? There's a synergy in working with other people, so I'd certainly encourage you to do that. So that's the sixth question. I'm going to hold the next six now. We'll talk about those in the next podcast. I hope you found that helpful. As I say, if you've been listening to this in the car, then I really would encourage you to try and take the time to come back to this episode and to start sketching out some of the answers as they apply to you because it's going to make such a big difference when you start planning your property journey. And if you've already started your property journey, as I say, these questions are really useful for making sure that you're on track and optimising the opportunities that are available for you. So this isn't by any means like a beginner's podcast, although beginners can certainly benefit from this. This is for all of us, and I regularly check myself against these questions all the time just to make sure that I'm doing the right things. So I hope you found this useful. If you have any ideas for any subjects that you'd like covered on the podcast then you know what to do. Get in touch with me through the Facebook group or you can message me on Messenger. If it looks like a subject which will benefit everybody then we may cover it on a future podcast. And by the way if you'd like to know a little bit more about me you can come to my website which is www the property teacher all one word the property teacher.co.uk where you'll find other great information and resources in the meantime though i've been peter jones this has been the progressive property podcast see you in the next episode here's to successful property investing